right, welcome to Faith Church. Glad you're with us. Uh, if you're kind of new around here, welcome. My name's Matthew, one of the pastors, and it's a joy to have you with us today. Two things real quick. Number one, uh, we've got a, a youth Super Bowl party coming up next Sunday. We're going to cheer on the Chiefs, somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, starts at 5.30, middle school, high school, college. We're kicking off a new set, uh, a new round of momentum as we lean into some things, embracing and pouring into our teenagers. Uh, and then number two, I want to let you know that connect groups are about to launch here in a couple weeks. And uh, whatever your excuse has been in the past, uh, just know excuses are like armpits. Everybody's got one and they smell. Uh, and we want to invite you in to begin to develop relationships and care for one another as we grow in our allegiance to Jesus. Matthew 23, if you got a copy of scripture, let's get there. We're continuing this collection of things, uh, talks and sermons around this idea of the King Jesus gospel, exploring it. What does it mean? If you uh, didn't bring a copy of scripture, but you have your phone with you, pull it out, open your camera, scan the QR code on the screen. You'll be able to follow along, read along. We are going to read an entire chapter today. We're going to do lots of reading. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, for real? Yes, for real. But as you know, I know how to read really, really fast. And the more amens you give me, the faster I preach. So it's really up to you. Okay, there it is. I just wanted to give you a chance to practice it. Matthew chapter 23, we're going to start in verse 1. We'll be making some commentary and application along the way. Verse 1, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey what they tell you, but don't follow their example. For they do not practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Every week we have here in our church with us watching online uh, multiple kind of categories of people. But if I could summarize them in two, we have a group of you who are in the room who are crowds. You're not quite a follower yet of Jesus. I mean, you're, you might be a fanboy and a fangirl. You like what he's got to say. You're kind of uh, having a little bit of affinity with him, but you have yet to really give him your whole heart and really begun to follow and live according to the ways of Jesus. You like the ideas. You just haven't integrated them into your life yet. And then we have a group of us who are, who are also disciples. Man, we, we're following, we've given him our whole heart. We've gone through the waters of baptism. We, we're, we're engaged in the family of God. We're, 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 we're seeking the Lord, allowing him to be our first love. I'm well aware of the group dynamic around us. Uh, Jesus was well aware of the group dynamic that, we, that he had in front of him. I, I want our gatherings to not only inspire you in the moment of a Sunday, but I want them to impact how you live on Tuesday. We want to live and, 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 and fall in love with Jesus in a rich, robust way, knowing that for the majority of our listeners, we are wanting to grow in our discipleship with Jesus. 
And many of you are inviting your friends and they're coming along and checking it out and listening in as part of the crowd. And we welcome that. We love that. And we want to make that a great encounter and experience for them. We don't ever want it to be one of those places where you're really afraid to invite your friends to church because you have no idea who's going to show up or what's going to happen or who's going to say what or if somebody's going to have like a ruler and a, and a, and a dress code at the door as to whether or not you're going to be allowed in or not. That's not kind of the environment in the family that we are. I love that people are watching and listening and a part of the crowd. A couple of weeks, uh, recently we had somebody get baptized and they had spent a couple, couple months just watching and listening online before they ever walked in the building. Just kind of checking, listening, being a part of the crowd, but then made a decision, hey, I'm ready to follow Jesus. And they got baptized, and it's a wonderful thing. And we celebrate those things. So, so whichever uh, you, you find yourself, just know you're in a good place to hear the word of God as you are examining these things. But at the end of the day, we absolutely want to help you grow and take next steps into your walk with Jesus. We want to be people, though, who not only teach correctly, but we live correctly too. We not only want to teach the truth about Jesus, but we want to live the message of Jesus all week long. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Here's the big idea today that we're going to see Jesus unpack. And that's this, that the radiant people of God are called to ongoing discipleship. Somebody say ongoing ongoing discipleship, continually growing as they radiate the life of God, not radiate the world around them, not radiate their opinions, not radiating their family structures, but radiating, living, and embodying the life of God. And that's what Jesus is getting us after that the religious leaders and the people that he was addressing, they taught the life of God, but they did not live the life of God. And I love how Jesus makes a distinction. He says, listen to what they say, because what they're saying is actually true. Just don't follow their example because they don't practice it. Which means that if you've looked at people and said, they're a hypocrite, therefore I'm not going to follow Jesus, you're on the wrong side of that equation. Hypocrisy is an issue. Don't get me wrong. Jesus is going to address it loud and clear. But just because people aren't following the message of Jesus doesn't get you off the hook to following the message of Jesus. Well, that's a really good place to say amen. Verse 5, let's, let's lean into what Jesus is saying. What, what's he talking about? He says, everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside, and they wear robes with extra long tassels. Uh, Jesus himself, by the way, wore a shawl with long tassels. So pay attention. He's not throwing baby and bathwater out. He's drawing a distinction to something. He goes on to say, verse 6, And they love to sit at the head of banquet tables and sit in the seat of honor in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces. 
where somebody calls them rabbi. Don't let anyone call you rabbi, for you have only one teacher, and you are all equal as brothers and sisters. And don't address anyone here on earth as father, for only God in heaven is your father. And don't let anyone call you teacher, for you have only one teacher, the Messiah. The greatest among you must be a servant, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We are finding ourselves at a unique place in our study of the gospel. As we've been walking through the gospel of Matthew together, we find ourselves at a unique place. N.T. Wright in his commentary on the gospel of Matthew summarizes kind of the unique moment that we're at in a very, very helpful way. Let me read you his words. He says this, with this chapter, we are launched into the last of the five great blocks of teaching which Matthew has constructed as the backbone, so to speak, of his gospel. The Sermon on the Mount came first in chapters 5 through 7. Then the commissioning of the disciples in chapter 10. Then you have the parables of the kingdom in chapter 13. Then the material on living as a community in obedience to Jesus' teaching in, in chapter 18. And now another long final block of teaching balancing out the Sermon on the Mount. We find it here in this section in chapters 23 through 25 as we begin to look ahead to the future and warnings of what is to come. In all of this, Matthew is saying we are to regard Jesus as being like Moses, only more so. Moses, as they believed, gave the people the five books of the law, and Jesus is giving them five books of the new covenant, the new relationship between God and the world. Moses brought the people through the desert and led them to the point where they were ready to cross over to the Jordan and go into the promised land. Jesus is leading his people through the desert to the point where he will lead them through death itself and on into the new world, which God is going to make. Only unlike Moses, we don't stay on this side of the river, leaving someone else to take the people of cross. Jesus will go on ahead like his namesake Joshua and lead us in himself into the new world. And now Jesus finds himself surrounded with people who are telling their fellow Jews about the heavy packs they need to carry on their backs for the journey. He's talking about the, the leaders and the Pharisees and the scribes. But who never dream of carrying such packs themselves. The legal experts who are always going on about Moses, Moses said this, Moses said that, do this, do that, watch out for the danger, remember to this very day, and so on and so on. From one point of view, it looks like wonderful Christian devotion, a lavish attention to the detail of the commandments which God gave to Israel. But from another point of view, it looks like a salesman telling a hiker all the things he should carry but never venturing out for a walk himself. Jesus' charge against the scribes and Pharisees, which builds up through this chapter as a devastating catalog of indictments. Not that they were wrong to pay attention to Moses. Matthew has made it clear all along that the Mosaic law, the Torah, was good and God-given. It should indeed be observed. But what really mattered in it, as he says in this chapter, were the big central matters, loving God and loving your neighbor, which means justice and mercy and faithfulness. 
When it came to those, he declared the legal experts who were so good at telling people what to do, never lifted a finger to move the really heavy burdens. Instead, they concentrated on outward show. And Jesus throws it all to the wind. He shows that they have understood what Moses uh, was on about. Generations of preachers have used this passage to criticize church leaders who like dressing up and being seen in public. That's fair enough. But we shouldn't forget that the scribes and Pharisees were not simply what we would call religious leaders. They were as much uh, what we would call social and political leaders, or at least the leaders of popular parties and pressure groups. What are today's equivalents? Some might be leaders, whether elected or unelected, in our wider societies, who give themselves airs on the media, who rejoice in their celebrity, quote-unquote, status, who make grand pronouncements about public values while running lucrative but shady businesses on the side, who use their positions to gain influence for their families and friends, who allow their private interests secretly to determine the public policy in their country. Before we indulge, though, as Christians in inward-looking polemic against other members of our own family of faith, let's be clear that the problem Jesus identified is not confined to churches, but runs through most modern societies from top to bottom. When we've got that clear, then of course there are several lessons for every church and Christian group to learn. It's not just about the titles we use for our teachers and leaders. The New Testament gives us a variety of those, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher in Ephesians 4. It's about the attitudes that go with them, which can be just as bad when people avoid official titles as when they use them. What matters is the huge and humbling principles that we read in verse 11 and 12. When we look at those verses, we realize, not for the first or last time, that we are indeed called to follow Jesus himself, who issued these denunciations not from a great pompous height, but on the way to the cross himself. He had seen that on the journey he and his true followers had to make, there would be no room for inflated luggage. He had already promised that his load was easy and his burden was light, and that people carrying heavy loads should take his load instead. And now he was on the way to shoulder the heaviest burden of all so that the people would never again have to be weighed down by it, referring to our sin that separates us from God. This is what we're getting into. Lest we think that as we read this text that it's about somebody else, we better stop and check ourselves before we wreck ourselves. Those are the warnings in which we find ourselves. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this thought down. Disciples are those who cultivate a sincere love for God and a sincere love for others, saturated in honesty, humility, and hunger for the life of God. This is what it looks like to have an ongoing relationship and a discipleship to Jesus saturate a sincere love for God and others, but it is saturated with humility, saturated with honesty and authenticity, saturated with a real hunger for the life of God, not to appear like you have a life of God, but to hunger to live out a life of God. 
And these themes are representative in the entire chapter that we're going to read today. In other words, Jesus is trying to let you know, I don't need you to show off for God. I need you to have a sincere love for God. I'm not looking for you to shovel shame at people who don't live your way. I'm looking for you to show the love of God as you live out the ways of Jesus yourself. In other words, get the log out of your eye before you're trying to pull a speck out of someone else's eye. In other words, don't stand on the street corners condemning culture while you yourselves have yet to really consecrate your own heart to God. Disciples cultivate this sincere love for God, a sincere first love for God. This is what we're after as a people. This is what we're after as a family. This is what we're after as the body of Christ. Friends, if you're taking notes, I want you to hear this and write this down. We can publicly demonstrate something spiritual through our actions, but not actually embody the life of God. We, we can, on the outside, demonstrate and have actions that look like spirituality while never actually embodying what it means to follow Jesus in the life of God. Uh, every year, there are, all across the nation, on the National Day of Prayer, what is called uh, prayer breakfasts. Communities all over. I have spent much of my life in ministry and have attended many, many of these. I am at a point in my life where I absolutely refuse to go. Some people on the outside, you're like, Pastor, you mean you don't pray for our nation and gather with other people to pray for our nation? Oh, no, 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 no. On the contrary, that's actually why I don't go. I have found that in these environments, people dress up, business leaders show up, and who's who, and we recite prayers and go through motions of prayers, and we network, and it looks really good, but I have found that there actually lacks real fervency and intentionality to actually pursue God in those moments. It's just a patriotic show of something that you want to call Christianity and seeking the Lord, but I have found that it's actually not calling heaven to invade earth. In those moments. And I don't say that as an indictment or anything else. I'm just simply saying I have found myself at a place in my life where I am not interested in giving my time and energy to appearing to seek God. I would rather just seek God. I would rather cultivate a sincerity to follow the Lord, seek the Lord rather than recite a prayer, lead people through something, but never actually find real repentance in my own heart. We can publicly demonstrate spiritual things through our actions, but not actually embody the life of God. We can take our hat off to pray, but never repent of our sins. Remember that sermon where we talked about it, where we just, where we make sure everybody takes their hat off when you come in a building and take your hat off when you go to church and take your hat off when you pray, but we never actually repent. We stay arrogant and act like we have respect for God and people, but we don't live a life that demonstrates any element of sincerity as we follow God. But by all means, let's keep doing external things that look spiritual. Spiritual. 
You might be somebody who always is criticizing the young people of our day, but you're not willing to mature, get rid of your double standards, or even serve to lead a small group to help youth follow Jesus faithfully. Why? Because you're willing to publicly demonstrate something spiritual through your actions, but not actually embody the life of God. Boys and girls, I'm just getting started. You always say churches never care about people, but you're not willing to lead a connect group nor attend a connect group where we actually, as a family, have set up structures and opportunities opportunities for you to get to know people and care for one another and be cared for yourself. People don't know the Bible and you get upset and you say, people don't know what the Bible says, but you don't know what the Bible says. You know enough to repeat what I tell you on a Sunday, but not enough to go feed yourself Monday through Saturday. Why? Because we're willing to settle for demonstrations of something spiritual through our actions, but not actually embody the life of God ourselves. We parrot that we're a disciple, but we're really just a fanboy. We gladly pronounce that we're all sinners saved by grace. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm a sinner saved by grace. But you're never willing to put actions or accountability into your life to help you prevent yourself from falling into the same sinful trap. This is what Jesus is addressing. That people who say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you and be your disciple will publicly demonstrate something that looks spiritual, but not actually embody the life of God inside or out. Let's keep going in verse 13. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and Pharisees? Hypocrites! For you shut the door on the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves and you don't let others enter either. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, you Pharisees, hypocrites. For you cross land and sea to make one convert, but then turn that person into twice the child of hell as you yourselves are. Oh, you blind guides, what sorrow awaits you? For you say that it means nothing to swear by God's temple, but that it is absolutely binding to swear and to say by the gold in the temple. Oh, you blind fools. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? And you say that to swear by the altar is not really binding, but to swear by the gifts on the altar? Oh, no, 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 now that is sacred and binding. How blind. For which is more important, the gifts on the altar or the altar that makes the gifts sacred? When you swear by the altar, you are swearing by it and everything on it. And when you swear by the temple, you're swearing by it and by God and all who lives in it and who, who he himself lives in it. And when you swear by heaven, you're swearing by the throne of God and by God who sits on the throne. Oh, silly rabbit. <laughs> Tricks are for kids. Anybody under the age of 30 has no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and Pharisees? Hypocrites. For you are careful to tithe on the tiniest income that comes from your herb garden. But you ignore the more important aspects of the law. Justice, mercy, and faith or righteousness. You should tithe, yes, but not neglect the more important things. 
what is Jesus getting at? What, 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 what is this whole section here? Here's what I want you to see. Jesus isn't deconstructing the need to follow God's law. He is emphasizing the purpose behind all of the practices of our faith, which is to radiate the life of God. He's not saying, get rid, these laws are pointless, it's stupid, don't do it anymore. He's actually saying, no, 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 you're missing the principle behind the practice. See, when you understand the principle behind the practice, no matter your environment, you're still living according to the life of God because your practices are driven by the principles that God has revealed in his word and the truth of who God is and what does it look like to be the people of God who radiate the life of God. In other words, what you find as we read through this, you're gonna, you found that, that your love for God, when your love for God is not sincere, you make up all sorts of things to prove that your love is sincere. Uh, just like when we're trying to convince somebody that we're not lying because we normally lie, but we don't want them to know that we normally lie. You say things like, no, no, I swear it's the truth. Honestly, 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 can I, can I, can I, can I just be honest for a minute? What are we trying to do? We're trying to convince somebody that we're being honest when in reality we normally aren't honest. And this is what the religious leaders, this is what they were doing. They didn't actually have a sincere love for the Lord. They didn't actually have the sincere that actually cultivated the radiant life of God. So they said one thing and did another. If your love for God is sincere, you don't have to broadcast it. People can see it. They can taste it. They will know that God is good in your life. You don't have to posture yourself. You don't have to present yourself as to be super uber spiritual. You don't have to, to hit everybody with the Bible verse and make sure you've got all the, share all the things, the Christian memes that if you don't share, then you don't really love God and you're whatever, whatever. No, no, because people know when they look at you, that person is in love with God. They are going after the life of God. And this is what Jesus is trying to reclaim in them. He's trying to warn them, listen, listen, listen. It's not too late, you hypocrites. You can actually live out what you say you believe. You can actually hold to it. You can follow it. You can find it. You can experience the life that God is after. Uh, it's interesting, friends. Jesus was clear. These things about the law you ought to do without leaving the others undone. Because the law and so much of it was about how do you live as the people of God in covenant with God? How do you live in a relationship with God? How do you live in a way that relates to God? How do you live in a way that helps you move? In other words, there is a point and a principle behind all of the laws, and it's how can you foster and live in a relationship with God? Which he clearly addresses this one thing that many of us don't want to address or hear, and that's Jesus says, no, absolutely, you should be tithing. But don't use your tithing as an excuse to not do the other things. In other words, yeah, write a check. But that doesn't give you a guilt-free card to live like a son of hell. Yes, you should tithe. But no, you shouldn't be greedy the rest of the time. 
It's about cultivating something of sincerity. Now, now let me use tithing because Jesus uses that example. Let me go there. Why did God institute the tithe to begin with? What's the principle behind what he's saying is the point? Behind the practice. What's the principle? Well, first you need to know that tithe means tenth or ten percent. Everybody say tenth. Very good. It's good for your heart to say some things out loud every once in a while, just so that we're clear as to what we're talking about. Uh, I I read a study that says somewhere close to, I think it's like 70% of professing Christians don't agree as to what tithe means. I don't know how we can redefine terms so well, but a tenth, I've always thought, meant a tenth. Why, why? I think there are three key reasons why tithing is important and why it was a part, why God instituted it and says it's good. Here are the three principles behind it. Number one, God knew and he knows that your heart follows your money. And God is after your heart. He's after your heart. And Jesus said it in Matthew, I think it's Matthew 6. Where your treasure is, there your heart is. Because your heart always tracks with your checkbook. Always. It's, it's your heart. So where your money goes, your heart goes. And many of us have a love relationship with AT&T and Crocan, but not a love relationship with Jesus. Why? Because your money tracks with your heart, and God wants your heart. That's the point. That's the principle behind the practice. Number two reason I think God instituted it, because God's solution to funding the ministry and the family of God and care for his family is through the tithe. Did you know, I read another study that said somewhere close between 3 and 5% of professing Christians actually give a tithe to the local church. 3 to 5% actually give 10% of their increase back to the Lord. It was God's solution to funding the ministry. That's how he set it up to, to do that. That was the point. And number three reason why I think he instituted it was this. It's an interactive money illustration that teaches the gospel of redemption that comes through Jesus. In other words, every time my wife and I return the tithe to the Lord, hear me, we are preaching the gospel to ourselves and anyone else who would notice. We're preaching the gospel to our kids. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his first son. Scripture tells us clearly that Jesus was the tithe that God gave to inherit the family of God that we all belong in. He was the first. You read through the Old Testament and you'll find what you do with the first determines the redemption or the atonement based on the rest. You had to give the first and the first cleansed the rest. The second, it it redeemed, it bought back, it made adoption too. In in other words, uh, it's an interactive illustration. So why do I still tie? People want to argue whether it's New Testament or not New Testament. I think Jesus is pretty clear that it's still in the New Testament. And he's like, yep, thumbs up. Why? Because he wants your heart. Why? Because he needs ministry to continue to go funded. And number two, we still need to preach the gospel and we want our money to preach the gospel instead of the greedy American way. We're saying, God, you're first. I want people to know Jesus redeems their life from hell. And he was the first. And I get to be the blessing because of it. 
tithing preaches the gospel again and again. What is Jesus doing? He's not deconstructing what you need to get rid of. He's giving you the point behind what you do so that God can have your whole heart. So that your practices of your faith don't become rote, religious, legalistic exercises. But rather they become a practice that cultivates a sincere love for God. Jesus is showing and will show that the payment for sins will be fulfilled. We don't do things anymore to pay for our sins. Jesus pays for your sins. Jesus pays and opens the door to a relationship. Jesus is the one who gives you the power to live as God's radiant people. And the invitation to being one of God's radiant people, to receiving the life of God and living the life of God is an open invite to whosoever will. He continues in verse 24 saying this. Blind guides, you strain your water so you don't actually swallow a gnat. But you swallow a camel. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law, you Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish. But inside, it's filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, wash the inside of the cup and the dish. Then the outside can become clean too. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, you Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled with dead bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Hypocrisy meaning you're pretending to be legalistic about your life. Lawlessness as if you disregard that you can do whatever the heck you want and God will forgive it and bless it. He won't. Don't hear me say God doesn't forgive your sins. He absolutely will. But when you live lawlessly and disregard what God has said and done, You're still putting yourself on the outside of the relationship with God, and he's trying to invite you in. In other words, it's not what you feel is true that you should live by. It's what God says is true. That's what you live by. Verse 29, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build tombs for the prophets your ancestors killed, and you decorate the monuments of the godly people your ancestors destroyed. Then you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would never have joined them in killing the prophets. But in saying that, you testify against yourself that you are indeed the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead and finish what your ancestors started. Snakes, sons of vipers, how will you escape the judgment of hell? I'm not going to use the English equivalent to what Jesus said. Just know the bleep button would have been used. Therefore, some of you are like, no way. Oh, I'm just saying. Therefore, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and teachers of religious law, but you will kill some by crucifixion. You will flog others with whips in your synagogues, chasing them from city to city. As a result, you will be held responsible for the murder of all godly people of all time from the murder of the righteous 
Abel to the murder of Zechariah, son of Barakiah, whom you killed in the temple between the sanctuary and the altar. I tell you the truth, this judgment will fall on this very generation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones the messengers. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings. But you won't let me. And now look, your house is abandoned and desolate. For I tell you this, you will never see me again until you say, Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is weeping, pleading, crying out for them to repent and change. He longs to bring them together. And when they come under Christ, just like when we come under Christ, we are protected from the, gover- from the judgment that is coming from the Lord. And Jesus longs to bring all people under that. Bring them in. Friends, without the power of the Spirit, we are doomed to repeat the very behavior we try and condemn in others. Without the power of the Spirit, you absolutely will become the version of the person that you never wanted to become. Because without the power of the Spirit, you have no power to live a godly life. Without repentance and honesty about your heart, you will ignore what is genetically hardwired within you to do. Sin. Separating yourself, suffocating the relationship of God in you. Without humility and repentance, we cannot receive the power of the Spirit in our lives, the life of God in our lives. N.T. Wright says it like this, Jesus is on his way to accomplish a real covenant renewal, which all the Pharisees' intensification of Torah could not achieve. He was on his way to draw on to himself all the wickedness of all the world, including, for that matter, the wickedness he was denouncing in this very chapter and elsewhere, to take their full force on him to himself and so to exhaust it. It would be a bad mistake then to read a chapter like this, And simply, as simply a moral denunciation, it would still be worse to read it as a moral denunciation of someone else. That's halfway committing the very mistake that's being attacked. In other words, if you're sitting here thinking, oh, I wish so-and-so was hearing this message. And not... Oh, yeah, that's true about me. You've missed the point. And you need to stick around for the second service and hear it again. (laughs) Jesus was trying to get you to realize, hey, listen, you're acting like a germaphobe. Oh, I got to wash my hands. Can't touch that. Oh, that's gross. I'm not drinking after you. Oh, that's so sick. I can't believe they would do that. Disgusting, gross. Ew. without realizing that your heart is dirtier than a New York sewer. 
and you can do all the things to wash and clean up and make your life look just so, but your heart reeks like a New York sewer. And what is Jesus saying? As long as it's still today, why don't you come and follow my ways? Why don't you come and let me be your sacrifice, your savior, and watch what happens? In other words, Jesus is doing this. Jesus is calling you and me to honest, humble repentance as we seek him to change what we hunger for the most. You know what you hunger for the most? Not appearing perfect. Not appearing like you have it all together. You know what you hunger for? A full life. The God kind of life. A flourishing life. The life where you don't have to pretend like you've got all the money, but you know that you have deep value and God values you. The the kind of relationship where you don't feel like you're having to pretend and keep up airs and one lie after another lie after another lie and pretend like you've got it all together because, friends, you don't and I don't. He's inviting you to come and be honest about who you really are, about what's really going on in your heart, knowing, and and our greatest fear is that in being honest about our struggles and being honest about our lives, that somehow that will bring rejection to us. And Jesus is trying to tell you, it won't. It actually brings the remedy and the healing and the redemption that you long for. All you have to do is be honest and make humble repentance asking him. Why? Because what we behold, what we look at, what we value, what we hunger for the most is what we become. So when we hunger and we humble ourselves and we look to the Lord, we become more like him. But when we we refuse to be honest and put on airs and be socially responsible and live a life and maintain an image and a status and well, that's the thing we're going to become. What is that? Exactly what he's been denouncing in this entire chapter. Friends, either we will radiate the life of God or we will replicate the life of the world whose father is Satan himself. We will radiate the life of God or we will be radioactive with sin, which destroys our relationship with God. And Jesus longs to turn away the judgment and to give us mercy, but your repentance and my repentance is required. Jesus wants to redeem us, protect us from the curse, but we often keep rejecting him, pretending, ignoring the reality of our sin. We we dismiss and downplay the severity of our exploits with greed. We downplay the need to be honest and true. We're unwilling to acknowledge that our sexuality and our activity as such is potentially destroying our ability to properly relate to God. We're unwilling to talk about it. Friends, can I ask you, Is there anything in your life of faith that would cause Jesus to grieve today? To grieve like he did over Jerusalem? Is Jesus grieving over you? It's not because you're so deplorable. Hear me. He's grieving because your relationship hasn't been restored. And your relationship isn't flourishing with him. 
He's grieving because he wants your heart. Have you just been going through the motions but not really hungry for God? Have you been lying a lot lately? Have you been gossiping and judging others? Have you been withholding forgiveness from other people? Are you not returning the tithe to the Lord? Have you been lusting more lately than normal? Have you been getting drunk and taking extra pills trying to numb some pain or forget something? Do you keep lashing out in anger? Have you been longing for a political awakening more than for personal revival? Friends, some of us need to take a moment and just confess that to God, to acknowledge and say, God, no, that's been me. I've been angry. I've been lusting. I've been jealous. I've been gossiping. I've been judgmental. Would you, would you bow your heads for just a second? I want to give you a moment to reflect and to think. Whatever we confess comes into the light. And when it's in the light, then God is inviting us into relationship in that moment. And the light of his son removes the curse. He removes the damage and repairs the damage to the relationship that's been done. Repentance isn't a dirty word. It's just an honest acknowledgement of confession before the Lord. Right in your seat. If you need to make repentance, would you just right now just say, Lord, I confess this has been going on in my life. I confess this attitude, this thing. I know it's been damaging my relationship with you. God, I, I personally long to hunger more for you. Lord, I want to be honest. I want to be humble. God, I don't want to be like the Pharisees and those followers that you were denouncing here, that you were drawing out. Lord, I, I want my heart to be humble and contrite and broken. Lord, because that's the kind of heart posture you don't despise, but rather you delight in. So, Lord, today, whatever it is in our hearts and minds, God, that has been severing or separating or even suffocating, God, our relationship with you, God, we repent. We confess it and identify it and call it out today. And we ask you to forgive us to heal our relationship and bring us back to union with you, God. Though we don't want to just demonstrate spirituality, but really, God, we want to embody the life of God in us. So, Lord, help us. Give us your strength and your spirit and your power. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, would you stand with me? Maybe you're walking through something and you just want to pray with somebody. We got a team available. They love to pray with you. 
I know today's word is a little bit of like in your face, kung fu, knock down some doors and walls, and you're like, oh, man. But the word of God is good. It's actually a mirror that reflects back the reality of who we are so that we can draw closer to Jesus, not run from him. Amen? Amen. Hey, let's speak blessing over the family, over one another. It's on the screen. Let's say it nice and strong. Ready, go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. Amen. Hey, go in God's grace and peace. We love you. I really hope today's message was life-giving. As a church, we want to help you encounter God and take another next step in your allegiance to Jesus. I want to ask you to take a step right now, in fact. Would you just share this message with a friend? Maybe post it on your social, text a coworker the link. Just be sure to include something that you learned or how it impacted you personally. When you do that, you get to be a part of seeing faith come to life in someone else. And don't forget to visit our central hub, faithchurchks.org. You'll find other next steps that you can take in your faith, including giving and partnership with us as we help others encounter Jesus like you've encountered him. Hey, we love you. And until we get to hang out again, remember, don't shrink back from your faithful allegiance to King Jesus.